it is really easy to discredit something that could actually be really beneficial to you because you don't know enough about it. For example, let's talk video games. If you aren't aware of the video game market, you need to be. And you don't have to be a gamer to appreciate it. I'm reading an article on a site called Geekadelphia. That's like geek with Philadelphia. And it's about how Grand Theft Auto in 2013 made more money in 24 hours than any other game or movie or even album in history. They made $800 million worldwide. The gaming industry made $70.4 billion versus 35.9 in the global box office for movies. So if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. I got a chance to interview one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert on gamification which is essentially all of the things that can bring out video game qualities into your business, but also a real intense study of what really prompts us to be drawn towards video games. Currently, my son is absolutely obsessed with the game Fortnite. And as a loving father and game enthusiast, I'm doing my own late night research just to make sure that the game is up to snuff. And I can tell you that it is. <laughs> so let's dive in. Let's look off the floor at the world of gamification with our guest, Yukai Chow. What happens when you combine business, pop culture, and at least five analogies to ballroom dancing? You get off the floor. A podcast to help you get to that next step in your career or your tango. Here's our host, Chris Lionel. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm here with Yukai Chow, and he is a world expert, a world leader on gamification. And he is uh, has been kind enough to join us. He's on a trip in Taiwan at the moment, and uh, but he was kind enough to join us on the Off the Floor show. Well, first off, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So really quick, why don't you tell me a little bit about just how you got into gamification and maybe just for people that aren't aware of what it is, like just like a quick overview on, you know, what your business does. Yeah, so the reason why I started Gamecation was back in 2003, quite a while ago. I was a very heavy gamer, and at the time, I played a lot of Diablo 2. And after 1,000 hours or 2,000 hours of playing the game, I decided to quit and move on. And then I felt extremely, extremely empty. I was like, well, I spent all this time making my in-game character great. I have all this great gear, all this gold. But in real life, I'm still the same guy and not accomplishing that much. So... It made me feel really, really empty. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be much better if I spent those thousands of hours playing uh, the violin or learning a new language? I would actually be high level in real life, not just in a game. So I started the journey of being obsessed about two things. Number one, are there games where the more hours you spend on it, the better your real life is? And number two, how to make real life more fun and interesting. So that set me off on the journey of gamification. I started a few startups, tech companies in this space. And uh, eventually, uh, this is an industry that picked up a lot. And so I became one of the earlier pioneers in the industry. And so I was known for creating this uh, psychological motivation theory called the Octalysis Framework. And so I do a lot of uh, teaching this framework at Stanford University, at Lego, at Google, at uh, Volkswagen, et cetera, et cetera. And so now I have two companies uh, that I'm running right now. One is a consulting company. So I help companies, nonprofits, and governments uh, create motivation and engagement. And the number two is something called Octalysis Prime, which is a gamified platform to learn about gamification. So applying 
all these fun, exciting elements into the learning process of gamification. Man, I am like, uh, <laughs> I'm so excited I'm chatting with you. This is like, uh, I love this stuff. If you had to think of businesses out there that have really done well with gamification, like they've really leveraged that, they've, they've been intentional about it. Give me some examples of, of ones that if you had to kind of show a, a deck to somebody and say, okay, if you really want to know what gamification is all about, like look at what these guys have done. So I think one of my favorite examples is Waze, the navigation company. And so Waze, when you think about a navigation company, like a GPS, you don't really think about fun, exciting, right? It's literally you turn left, you turn right, you get your destination. It's a tool, right? It's functional, not fun. And so when Waze came out of Israel, I think around 2009, 2010, it was a small startup and it had competitors with way, way, way more money and way, way, way more market share. And so it had to innovate and it says, no, no, let's not just have a functional tool. Let's make driving itself more fun and exciting. So there's a lot of gamification to it. They had little playful images. They had points together. They made it really social. You see, when you're driving, you see smiley faces everywhere and you can send a social product beep beep and you know, people feel connected. Uh, there's this epic meaning and calling where everyone feels like even if they know how to drive to the workplace, they're helping the whole community defeat this big snake monster called traffic. So they added all these gamified elements into driving itself or using a navigation app. And at the end of the day, I think within six, seven years, they sold to Google for a billion dollars. So I'd say that is a pretty strong use case of gamification. From that standpoint, I can totally see it that you're taking a tool and you're turning something that's functional and turning it into fun. I love that. So now if you think about like your own development in terms of gamification, or if somebody wanted to get better at it, do you feel like they should spend more time gaming or do you feel like they should spend more time like maybe mapping and auditing like human behavior? Uh, well, I think most people, and assuming your audience also, has spent uh, quite a few hours gaming. I'd say I'd, I'm willing to bet probably more than 100 hours gaming <laughs> in their lives. Uh, so I think at this point, it's probably more beneficial to learn about motivational principles, understand how the brain works better. And then once, because you have all these gaming hours, now you can apply that and you can understand, okay, this is how this game drove my my actions and my uh, my motivation. Uh, of course, sometimes I meet people who've never who haven't played that much games, and when I work with them, I can see that there's they have a huge uh, uh, void that they're lacking, you know, in terms of understanding everything. But but I assume uh, people in your audience base don't have that. Yeah, you know, it's so whatever you're lacking, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's funny. It, the one part of the audience, like in my business, I would say that none of my staff, all of our dance teachers, none of them have lacked anything in terms of gaming from that standpoint. But I think most of our clients are probably on that flip side, like you mentioned, like they probably have purchased gaming consoles for their kids or something like that, but maybe have not spent as much time gaming. But it, it's kind of a mixed bag. But I know it is pretty weird. Yeah. My, my, and, and you'd be surprised to some people say that, oh, I'm not a gamer, I don't really play games, and you realize they they play Candy Crush for two and a half hours every day. You know, <laughs> that is true. That is so true. So now let's talk about like your gaming origin story just for fun. Like what's what was like the first console you ever had? How'd you get it? What'd you play? Like go way back. Okay. 
So my the first uh, game I played is the NES, Nintendo NES. Yeah. And I was living in South Africa at the time. Oh. And I, how was old was I? Probably four years old, I'd say, three or four years old. And it was actually a uh, close family friend that just gave it to me as a gift. And so I said, she literally kind of, in a very early stage, jump-started my gamification career. I don't know if my mother would be buying them uh, video games. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny how that works out. My my dad bought us the very the first generation of that of that Nintendo system with the robot. I still have it um, where it did not include Super Mario Brothers. So I remember going to the mall to buy Super Mario Brothers as a standalone game, and uh, mm-hmm. we had Duck Hunt and Gyromite, and man, that was just such a great time. You know what's the funny story about Duck Hunt? I had this uh, the cassette cassette game with like I think a hundred games on it. One of them was Duck Hunt. Yeah, but I didn't have the gun, and I didn't know I was supposed to have the gun. So I was trying to play the game, like literally for over a year. I just every once in a while I try to play it again, and I just control the duck, and it flies around and flies away. And the dog comes out and laughs at me. And like, how does this game work? Why is he laughing? How do I work? Where where should I make the duck go to win? And I was just figuring that for 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 a long time, probably more than a year as a little kid. And I was just always very very confused about how the game worked. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. So now, if you kind of had to break down, you know, without giving away too much, you know, of the intellectual property or anything, but if you had to kind of break down the graph that you have that kind of explains, you know, just how it maps out like human behavior and some of the rewards and stuff, um, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And you don't have to worry about any of the IP stuff because people, you know, I share as much as I can. The, the, the real barrier is just the learning curve. People have been learning my stuff, reading my book for two, three years, and they're still like relatively in the first 30% of the learning experience. So, so oh, got it. there's a learning curve to it. Yeah, but, but the nice thing is even if you know a little bit, your output, your life actually, I get lots of emails about people's lives change dramatically because of that. It's just, there's a big journey to go. Uh, but so I'm well known for it. Again, the Alcalysis framework. And it's called the Alcalysis because it's analysis based on an octagon shape. And so I was spending a lot of time studying exactly what makes a game successful because nowadays a lot of people think gamification is putting on points and badges and, that what, and that's what makes things fun. Uh, and to a greater extent, like all these fancy terms we call game mechanics, game design elements, like leveling, like ability trees. And what I noticed is it makes no sense because when I ask people, what's your favorite game and why, no one ever says, oh, I like this game because it gave me points, right? They always tell you something more about uh, really challenges me. I can use my creativity. I play with my family. And so if you think about it, every single game in the market has game elements in them, right? But most games are not successful. Most games are failures and only a few well-designed games achieve mass success. So it just makes no sense for someone to say, hey, if I just put these game elements into that, that are even found in boring products into my product or my life or my processes, I autom- it automatically becomes fun and successful. It just doesn't happen that way. Again, only a few well-designed games achieve mass success. So I spent a lot of time studying exactly what makes a successful game successful and i noticed that so what i do is i study games that are very similar to each other so sometimes they're just one is just a clone of the other uh they're just copycats sure and uh but one is very successful and one's a big failure and i want to understand why that is so first of all i noticed it's not because one has game elements of the other doesn't right because they're copycats so they both have leveling they both have ability trees they both have easter eggs and i also noticed not because of the graphics sometimes the visually stunning game is a huge failure and the relatively ugly game like uh, like Minecraft or RuneScape, sure. which is mass success. And so at the end of the day, I realized all the successful games have now what I call the eight core drives of motivation. 
So I published this framework again on the octagon and it really got picked up really quickly. It was translated organically into 18 different languages and I started getting uh, all these different opportunities. So the thing about these eight core drives that motivate us, everything we do is based on one or more of these eight core drives, which means that if there's none of those eight core drives there, there's zero motivation, no behavior happens. Got it. And out of those eight core drives, there's different natures to the core drives. So our model, what we call white hat core drives, it makes people feel powerful, uh, that we feel in control, we feel good, but there's no sense of urgency. So we procrastinate. And then there's what we call black hat core drives that make us feel urgent, obsessed, even addicted, but in the long run, it leaves a bad taste in our mouths because we feel like we're not in control of our own behavior. And so again, white hat makes us feel good and positive. It's good for long-term loyalty programs, employee motivation and creative thinking. Black hat is short-term obsessive, but it doesn't make people feel great. So it's better for one-time transactions or like getting people's credit card, getting people to donate money or getting people to do like short bursts of activities, like a short competition. Got it. And then there's what we call intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation design. So Extrinsic motivation core drives are things we do for a reward, a purpose, or a goal. But we don't necessarily enjoy the activity itself. So once we obtain the reward, we hit our goals or we get used to the reward, we stop doing the behavior. So it's like, I don't like my job, but you know, it pays me a lot, so I, I'm engaged with it. Uh, but if the money suddenly decreases, I don't want to do it anymore. Then there's intrinsic motivation, which are things that we just enjoy doing to the point that we're even willing to spend money just to experience. And if we lost all our progress the next day, we would still do it today because you know we just enjoy it so much that it just makes our lives better. So, so part of my work is not just to create motivation, but to understand the nature of the motivation. Is it a white hat? Is it a black hat? Is it long term? Is it short term? And then how, how companies do, do that. So like white hat would be like a Fitbit and like black hat might be playing a hundred hours of Grand Theft Auto. Is that kind of? Uh, it, it wouldn't be that simple. So <laughs> white hat comes from three different core drives and power. Uh, so first of all, is epic meaning and calling core drive one. Okay. So that's saying you're doing something because you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're like a game saving the world or you're being a hero um, or you are just helping third world countries, things like that or it's something close to your faith, you know, or your beliefs. Sure. Uh, development accomplishment, which means that uh, you feel like you're leveling up, achieving mastery, you are uh, improving yourself. And then empowerment of creativity and feedback, which means you're using your creativity, giving, having meaningful choices, having self-expression. So a lot of, uh, like Fitbit, a lot of it is co-directed development accomplishment. Right. So as long as people feel like they're progressing forward, they feel motivated, right? But once they plateau, it's like, oh, I can't, I don't, I'm not, I don't see a lot of progress anymore. I'm at the same place. I'm not improving. Then that white hat uh, disappears. And then a lot of these things rely on social competition. So social competition is more on the black hat side, which means in the short run, it's fun, it's thrilling, it's engaging, but oftentimes, you know, people don't like to be in constant state of competition. So after, you know, four months, five months, you know, you, you, you're not, you're not competing with the, with the friends anymore. It's kind of just like old. Yeah. Uh, and one person stopped caring and more people stopped caring. Now, Grand Theft Auto has, a, if you look at most successful games, you'll find that they have a lot of different core drives, black hat, white hat, and, and all their different phases. And so usually if you wanted to only play for a few hours and you end up playing for to like 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, that's that's probably due to black hat. Yeah, it's also, so when you watch a, like a binge watch a Netflix show and there's all these cliffhangers, they'll get black hat too. 
Oh yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. I could see all of these, these principles are so great and universal and how they can map over to so many different avenues. So how about, for example, if this was like a Spartan race, you know, where they have these obstacle courses and you're jumping into the mud and you're climbing over stuff, what would you say, like, how would you kind of map that out if, if that, if they were your client, like, what would you say that they're doing right? Okay. So definitely there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, in terms of development accomplishments, and I haven't seen those exact Spartan races you're talking about actually, but I've seen, you know, different challenges like you talked, like what you described. So usually there, there's a tears, right? It's like, oh, you went to level one or you went to this obstacle and you got stuck on number seven. Next time you try, maybe you're number eight. So you, so you see that development accomplishment. If you're racing someone else, there's that social influence and relatedness. So that competition, that thrill, that excitement, and of course, you're, you're immediately seeing feedback about are you ahead of people or behind. There's that empowerment of creativity and feedback. Usually, you kind of have to strategize what's the best way to do it. So usually, when, when you're doing something that you can actually think about how to do it better, when even when you're not playing the game, then you have this element of strategy. And, uh, and that's, one of, that's on the right top of the octagon, which means it's white hat and intrinsic. And that's like a, what we call evergreen core drive. You know, so it's, uh, you're always motivated. All the timeless games have that core drive. Uh, there's a lot of scarcity and so there's the, usually there's like a countdown and time is passing by and you have, you need, you can't take your time, right? It's, it's urgent. So this is why it's black hat means that we're really driven by it, but we don't feel comfortable, right? We're looking at the countdown timer. We're looking at, you know, are we losing? Are we losing? And a lot of these challenges, when you lose, you kind of, there's core drive loss and avoidance, which is, you know, you kind of make yourself look really, really silly or you fall into a very uncomfortable uh, situation. Then there's core drive seven unpredictability and curiosity. If you, if there are always these surprising elements that, that, uh, that could get you. So yeah, so there's different core drives in, embedded in that. And so that's why while it happens, people are really engaged, but keep in mind if it was like a, a continuous long-term thing, right? If this was, if it's not like uh, less than an hour, if it's like 40 hours of this, people tend to not, not want to do it because there's, there are a lot of black hat in that again. Yeah. So now if this was like, a, let's say this was like a Las Vegas nightclub and they said, we <laughs> were intentionally want to add more black hat like motivation to to get more sales up in our champagne room or something so what would you say like are some things that they're already doing that maybe they can do more of um not that i have a vested interest in that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so they are right now already do a lot of the scarcity tactics right some of them purposely show a long line oh that so you you know you know everyone wants to get in but no one can get in right that's a scarcity tactic uh that's core drive six and you know there's a lot of status right and and a lot of things they, they make people do are kind of has a lot of flair so it stands like hey people who did it they're making a rain with their little cash, with their little dollar sign. <laughs> you know, they get to pop the bottle. But what I would look into is, for instance, Core Drive 7, unpredictability and curiosity. So whenever the guests do the desired behavior, so let's say buy another bottle or whatnot, there's always some kind of surprising element that's not the same. Like, oh, it's always the same thing. I'm just, because that's what's called a fixed action reward. Hmm. But a mystery box design is better in terms of when you do the action, maybe there's always a, a special dance that comes out just for you. And you always, you never know what it is. So you always want to know, okay, what's, what are we, we going to get this time? What are we going to get this time? 
maybe it's a dance, maybe it's something else, right? And um, sure. then there's potential Easter eggs. Easter eggs, so mystery box designs, you know what the desired action is, but you don't know what the reward is. But for Easter eggs, you don't even know what the desired action is to get the reward. You just do your regular activities, but then suddenly, boom, the reward shows up. And it makes people so happy that it makes them want to go back and uh, do the desired behavior more often to see if they can replicate the results. It makes them want to uh, tell their friends about it because it was like, wow, I totally didn't expect it. It's like, I was so lucky or it's so awesome. Uh, and some, a lot of times their friends want to, want to come and sign up to see if they can, if they get lucky and they win this Easter egg too. So, so I would look heavily into, again, Core Drive 7 on predictability and curiosity. I love that. Okay, I have so many questions now. Um, not just because you talked about nightclubs, I'm way way past that. Um, so you do have do you have invested uh, interest in nightclubs? <laughs> no, no. But actually, I spent a lot of time and money at nightclubs, and so that scarcity thing. I have been the victim of some of that stuff for sure. As a young man with my buddies, and we would drive up and we'd wait in line, or every now and then we would get the you know the Easter egg for us was getting on the guest list because we called into the radio station and we got selected at random and. And, um, you know, things like that where we would be on the list and then there's a status feeling to that and you, you're, you're bypassing the line and, um, oh my gosh, I, I always joke around and yeah. say like, I kept, I kept half the nightclubs in San Francisco in business, uh, with me and my buddy and we didn't really do anything. We just went there. I mean, we didn't even dance that much. We just walked around and looked at girls, but we were too scared to talk to them. So yeah so so here so then these here's additional services right based on what you're saying people go there for their social status to have fun with friends and look cool so they should probably continue to prioritize how to make people look cool and special and if they have a service for hey if you pay whatever they will help you you know connect to you. they will go to the hot girls and say hey you know the vip at that table is interesting having chat would you like to go talk to them or something whatever right make it easier for for the shy guys who have more money to, to talk to your girl because that probably solves a huge pain, right? So there are definitely a lot of things you can do to, to make it more engaging. There is your next startup right there. I think you've got a huge market for that in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. <laughs> hey, so uh, you mentioned Easter eggs. I have to bring this up because it's it's out, but uh, what were, what's your take on Ready Player One? Uh, did you read the book? Did you watch the movie? Uh, what's your take on it? I didn't read the book, but I was there at the premiere uh, for the movie. And uh, actually, it's because one of the VC firms, uh, Founders Fund, they, they, they booked the whole theater and they invited, I guess, people they, they liked to it. And afterwards, there was an interview between um, the founder of Oculus Rift and the author of the book. Oh, cool. Uh, and yeah, so, so first of all, the, the movie itself. So I enjoyed, I think for the, uh, the ambition it has, it was really well made. Now, the thing for me is, and this is my problem probably, but whenever I watch movies, I can't turn down this, this logic engine. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, how would this make sense here? How would this make sense there? It, it is a society that took playing games very, very seriously. Like all the big companies, the richest companies in the world, they're like, no, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta have employees that are good at playing games. Right. And all the, the smart analysts, you know, the, you know, the, the geeky analysts who came up with the best schools, they're hired to look at, oh, you know, this was the first game and it's, and this Easter egg, it's so cool. And, you know, and, you know, I think that's a very interesting uh, concept society act, but to be honest, what that society is, is almost the opposite of what I do as gamification, hmm. because my work is actually making this world more so exciting. You don't need to go to a virtual fantasy world. 
And yeah. that world is assuming, oh, the real world sucks. So let's let's just escape to that. So it's like the opposite. So anyway, that's that's the movie itself. And when I was inter- when I was watching the interview, and it was it was funny because the author he was very down to humble. He was like, yeah, this is so ex- amazing. It's like every author should have that experience in their first book. And he's uh, like, I, when they asked me a list of uh, directors, I didn't even I didn't even write down Steven Spielberg because I thought it was impossible. Mm. And and he says, this is like the best time of my life, and I'm just appreciating it because it's going to all go downhill from here <laughs> and then and then everyone's laughing and he's like no no seriously you know there's I, you can't top this like what are the chances that your first novel became your also became your favorite steven spielberg movie oh man <laughs> good point yeah, so he was just really excited yeah. you should check out the audiobook of the book itself from a from a contextual standpoint like the movie i think did a great job to give give the masses kind of a, a distilled version of the book but the book is fantastic and the audiobook is will wheaton um from star trek the next generation and stand by yeah, me well, and I, I know him from the Big Bang Theory. So. Oh yeah, there you go. We can from the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and so, so, so he does the reading on the audiobook, and and he does a just a bang up job. So now, when you talked about like that late night binge gaming, like before Diablo, was there a, a game like what was the first game that you did that in? Can you remember which one it was? I think it's some Chinese RPG game when I was little, and the only reason I could is because I. Uh, well, there's two reasons I could binge because back then only RPG games, you can save your progress, right? Because everything right. else you kind of have to keep playing. And so those aren't that friendly for secretly waking up in the middle of the night and playing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I think the game, the first game that I played pretty hardcore is Starcraft one. And I still hold that at the, you know, at the time, like, or it's probably the best made game in, in history, considering what was considering available. what what was available during the time. Yeah, yeah, it was just mind blowing. My what's so funny that you I played a, a game. It was based on the Chinese empires at Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Did you ever play that game? Uh, I played a lot of Three Kingdom games, but uh, I don't know the English title of them. Yeah, of the, yeah, of the one you mentioned. So that yeah, that was the first game I ever. My my buddy, uh, <laughs> he came over and I had someone had given me chocolate covered espresso beans as like a a holiday gift or something. And I remember eating those. And then the next thing you know, I'm playing that game in my room. And then my buddy comes over and it's the next morning. And he's like, "Tell me you haven't been playing this all night." And I was like, "I just <laughs> need I need to find this, you know." And were you like you're recruiting advisors and harvesting stuff? And anyway, yeah. it was awesome. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes I uh, I play some game, Cures of the Storm, and some guy says, "All right, my time's up. I gotta go to bed now. See you later. Bye." I'm like, "Okay, good night." And then later on, he logs back in. I was like, "Oh, he already went to bed and woke up, and we're still playing." <laughs> that is so funny. Okay, so now quick takes. Um, what's your take on uh, the staying power, or maybe the rise and fall of Pokemon Go? What do you What do you feel like they did well? So when So when Pokemon Go came out, like. Almost a week ago, we wrote an article about why we think, based on their design, they'll probably do well for three months, and then they'll probably dwindle down. And it's because the design they have is all extrinsic motivation. So here's the thing. When you have a timeless game, you have what I remember I said, uh, Code Drive 3, empowerment of creativity and feedback, which is, you know, thinking about unique strategies, beating your, you know, uh, coming up combos, beating your friends. And so even in the older Pokemon games, the battling is a lot more interesting, right? You know, you, you're always trying to figure out how to synergetically uh, use your monsters together, your Pokemon together, and how do you... 
uh, train them in the right way and learn the right skills. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of creativity to think about how to do battles. But when Pokemon Go came out, they made the battling. Oh, and so when you capture a new monster in the old one, it's allowing to expand that creative. It's almost like you're an artist and you suddenly have a new color that you can use in, in your paint. So, so it's like it expands your creativity. Now you have even more strategies. But the Pokemon Go's design, the fighting is very preliminary. So it's a lot of just swiping, swiping, swiping. Yeah. Which means that you're capturing these monsters not to have cooler strategies to battle. You're capturing more monsters to just for capturing sake. It's really just about the got to catch them all which means it's purely extrinsic motivation. You're not doing it for the gameplay, you're doing it just to capture them all, which means at one point, once you capture um, all the ones that are easy to capture, and then the, the ones you don't have are way too hard, then you lose motivation, right? There's nothing to do anymore. So so that's, you know, it's actually quite predictable where, yeah. where it's a game that once, you know, once they captured all the things that they can easily do, they, they stop because it's, it's mostly extrinsic motivation design, not intrinsic. That's great. And then how about, what do you feel like has been the, um, you know, the big, what was the big win for Fortnite? Why do you feel like that's kind of blown up outside of just Drake being on Twitch? What do you feel like Fortnite has done well? And what do you feel like the prospect is for that game? Yeah, I think these kind of games, uh, it, first of all, there's a lot of social influence, right? You know, like you just talked about, people like to share, like not just play, but watch people play. That's so you think allows a lot of uh, personal expression right? in terms of how to play a strategy, in terms of all your gear, do you have the bunny suit and whatnot. A lot of unpredictability. So it basically has pretty much all these eight core drives in that, right? There's a sense of development, accomplishment, growth, there's strategy, there's a sense of ownership, you're growing, uh, there's social influence, there's scarcity with terms of resources and and uh, information and all these things in the sense of urgency. And uh, so there's unpredictability. You don't know what's going to happen next. You, know, you don't know if there's enemies close by. Uh, and there's lots of avoidance. Obviously, you could freeze and die. So, so again, it just has all these components. And I think if people stop playing, it's not because the game itself became boring. It just, it just means some other game that's somewhat similar. Because it's this, you know, Fortnite is already close to uh, to PUBG, right? So, right. It, so it's just basically whatever worked there with some additional core drives attached to it. So I think people will stop playing it just because something else came out that has that's similar that is similar in excitement, but adds more components and people enjoy that. So it's almost like people stop because there's a sequel as opposed to they lost interest. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's kind of like, it's almost like a sugar, <laughs> a sugar based diet versus like a Thanksgiving dinner or something. And it doesn't have the enough meat on the bone. Sure. I guess you could say that. Yeah. So then um, if you were thinking of like our ballroom dance studios, for example, we have students that come from, like I said, every walk of life, every career path. Um, you can imagine what are some things that you feel like we could utilize from a gamification standpoint to, to create a better experience for our clients? So first of all, all enjoyable experiences, fun things come from the right brain core drives. So those are empowerment of creativity, so giving them self-expression strategy. Uh, I think there's a lot of that components of dancing. Now, I don't know if your program is following the exact steps. Uh, social influence relatedness is huge, right? In terms of just connect bonding with usually one individual, but in a group too. So there's the, there's a double sense of uh, we're together, but with a group of with others also. Sure. Um, but I think it's about I think 
Um, this this is always hard in in this in these type of more intimate kind of scenarios because sometimes you get matched up or someone in your class is great and and uh, you have the best experience of your life or you don't have chemistry or you don't like that person and and then it's not that great. But I think what you can control is the instructor. The instructor can control interaction with the instructor, right? And so uh, I, I I guess it's hard to say exactly what to do well there, but but I think it's just important to know that you want to constantly make people their socially appreciate people in society, whether it's the workplace with anywhere, they feel like they're not being, they're not really being appreciated by other people. And some people appreciate them that they just don't easily allow others to say it, you know, it's like, Hey, if you ask them, yeah, they'll say, yeah, you did a great job. I really think, I really think it's, you're great here, but people don't end up saying that. So I think you can create an environment where it's easy for people to express gratitude, appreciation for each other. So they come in not for, necessarily for the dancing, but they come here because this is a place where they feel accepted. I feel like they, they actually, people people pay attention to them and they're going to, they're appreciated. Uh, I think the unpredictability and curiosity is important uh, because again, I think my my preliminary understanding, and if I'm giving bad advice or inappropriate or just, <laughs> no, 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 this that, is just, just random ones, it's because I don't have, I'm not an expert in, in that field in particular. Sure. I just remember when I try, it was like, and maybe because that's, that's the experience of every beginner, right? It's, it's always the same, you know, it's very boring steps. One, two, three, left, right, forward. Or, sure. And, and so it's like, okay, well, after 20 minutes of this, like, all right, well, what's next? I've kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of boring now. So, so, <laughs> so wait, did you take a dance lesson in college or what, what, did you ever take, take lessons? Yeah, I took, I took a, I think I took a lesson in the community college. So we did some cha-cha, some salsa. Yeah. Nice. One, two, cha-cha-cha. I remember that. There you go. Uh, yeah. And, but another thing is you want to make people feel like, every step they feel accomplished that they're actually getting somewhere so do you know when people quit what's the main reason they quit yeah i mean there's a you know there's always going to be the time and money kind of surface level objections but we always we try to take a real accountability first kind of approach to it and so i think what it really breaks down to is that sometimes people get kind of stuck in like you talked about a plateau and people get stuck in like an awkward use stage for so long or they get stuck in a conscious use stage where where they're making progress but they're really suspicious of it and so generally it's usually something having to do with you know their confidence or an ability objection is really kind of like the deep down kind of deep-seated rationale, I think. Yeah, I'd say that for most people, if they don't go, it's not really a money issue. It just means they don't see the value. Yeah. Right. It's it's because if they see the value, if they if if this was the highlight of their week, like everything sucks, but over here, it just makes them life just amazing. I don't think money would for most people. If that was if that would have been an issue, they wouldn't have signed, they wouldn't sign up in the first place. Right? Yeah. And we always um, we we love to say that like no one wants to pay money to feel like an idiot, you know. And, and so you're not gonna. And so you definitely aren't gonna place a high value on anything that you feel you feel like you're you're lacking at, right? Yeah. And so, so that's the first thing and time, sometimes an issue. So time is a little harder because people do have, they are busy and we know that black hat increases urgency. So the thing about white hat is people like it, they enjoy it. And if they do go, they're happy, but they never find 
the artists do. There's always these other black hat things like you know deadlines, all these exclusive offers. And what's the Game of Thrones? You know, those are the black hat core drives. Right. People don't go, and then when they don't go, they feel guilty. It's like, oh, that's when they think I wasted my money because I didn't have time. Therefore, my money was like badly spent or whatever. Uh, so the thing is, sometimes there's that that you need to add some black hat to that experience. Like, oh, well, there's limited. Uh, there's a, some kind of scarcity and people joining. So people, oh, you know, there's there's a rare opportunity for me to do this, and that's when people prioritize it or again every time they go there's some kind of surprise so now the brains are looking forward to it's almost like pulling a slot machine bar like every time i go there's like a treasure box opens it's exciting um and so now that that combats the oh what's what's on the next episode of game of thrones of course it's still hard to combat that part but or, or what's what's on my facebook or just netflix whatever right so so that unpredictability is there um sometimes just having a, a like a social like hey you know like a program if, if you can get your own students to reach out to each other somehow like mm-hmm. you say hey you know are you going tomorrow are you going today see you today those will be amazing those are triggers to remind them to go and because it's students doing to each other it's not spammy <laughs> yeah oh yeah uh, of course people kind of like uh oh it's only like 40 minutes away and i haven't been prepared so yeah i guess i'll skip today yeah that, okay. that also happens a lot i this just reminded me like when you talked about community and i was thinking of like you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and and all of those things about like what we you know what's really deep seated in terms of just human behavior and and it just reminded me when you were saying that about community and i remember realizing in one of our schools i was just getting some water and i overheard two students talking to each other one was complimenting the other one and was saying hey i've really noticed a big difference in the way that you do your waltz keep up the good work and it sounded like what a teacher might say to a student but it was just two students just chatting with each other and i was like oh my gosh that's what we're trying to create so it kind of fits and keep in mind this is great because it's almost like easter it's not like they're doing it at the moment right because when you're doing a teacher the teacher might say oh yeah that's great you're amazing you're doing a good job and that's okay but they they kind of expect the teacher to be encouraging right but at another random moment so the one is unexpected so it's easter egg. number two it's specific right it's a hey i noticed your whatever blah 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 is doing ex- excellent so if you say hey you know you look you talk about back to the nightclub scenario if you say hey you look pretty right it's like yeah whatever right you're just you're just a random guy trying to hit on me but if you can say something really specific hey the way you did your curl, curl i don't know any of the details right if you say whatever or i like how your shoes match your purse you know it's very it's very clever it's specific that's when they're like oh yeah you're you notice this it's great that's when they're happier yeah oh that's so good man we could do a four-part episode series on this this is so cool i love the stuff i really appreciate you making the time i want to ask you some rapid fire questions now it's time for rapid fire questions first thing that you can think of first one what is your snack food of choice when you are doing like late night gaming actually to the contrary i'll say that when i game i'm always on a standing desk so when i binge play for like seven hours i'm I actually would be standing for seven hours straight so it's the opposite of of uh snack foods i guess <laughs> for, for yeah all right uh what is a book that you've read that you feel like you could go back you could reread it it's really just rocked your world uh book of choice i don't know if there's a book that i can just keep and and it's just because there's always these other great books to read i mean i, I love reading motivation psychology related books so daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow i think um, i think that 
you you get a lot of after each read. Uh, that that is an absolute game changer of a book for sure. Very cool. So then, uh, how about what is one moment? If you we'll, we'll throw a little dance element to this. If you could go back to one moment in your life as a really really good dancer, what would that moment be? <laughs> uh, that's a hard thing because even as a really, really good dancer, like actually the times I went back is I wish I had more confidence yeah. to, to reach out to someone I could dance with as opposed to being a better dancer. Now, assuming being a great dancer means I also have the confidence to interact with someone. Yeah, it's <laughs> always the case. Package deal. Yeah, it's a package deal. Actually, maybe maybe it'll be more like like high school. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, high school. That's when the time you're, you're really shy. And you know those dances, it's like everyone's just like doing the, the left, right, left, right, really boring stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think I think if I was a really great dancer and you know I can show it off and everyone sees it and it's amazing, maybe, maybe that maybe that will change my, my high school life uh, entirely. I think yeah. everything else after that, I, I felt more confident and, and things are pretty well. But high school is the time where I wish uh, I, I knew how to do more things better. That is so cool. Okay, that's. I think that if there was such thing as a time machine, and and then they were running the metrics on where people was using were using it the most, I think high school would probably be the top choice on the time machine <laughs> data selection. And that's a good thing because that means that people's lives got better and better. So the things they would change is like early, early on in life, not not later on. So. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Okay, and then what's next for you? Like, what do you have in the works, and um, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, so my biggest project this year is what I mentioned, Octalysis Prime. So it's a gamified island to learn about gamification. It's really uh, the book and beyond. So people read my book for two, three times and ask what's next. So I created the Octalysis Prime and it's meant to be, be way, way beyond. It's already created 300 videos on it, like five, 10 minute videos, most of them. And the book covers about 15% of my knowledge base, that 500 page book and Octalysis Prime is more. So even thinking fast and slow. So I did a, what we call a Octalysis book osmosis series. So I break down chapter by chapter, break down the lessons connected to pop media games and also how to apply it to in real life. And just a ten, 10 pages, a 10 page chapter becomes a one hour video just to analyze everything it's saying, which is why I say it's, it's great with re-readability. Yeah. Uh, so that's the biggest thing I'm working on. It's meant to be a, 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 a no brainer. So my workshops, are like a thousand dollars a person usually consulting projects like fifty thousand dollars to one hundred twenty thousand dollars but this is like fifty dollars a month for a palace's prime and it has the recording part of the 300 video is the recording of the workshops that people pay ten thousand dollars to attend uh, i have regular office hours where every week i help members with their projects for an hour where consulting is, is you know in the thousands of dollars of value so it's, it's meant to really just be making myself more accessible to, to you know to more people not just wealthy companies so so it's something that I'm really passionate about. So if this is interesting, you want to learn more and you want to go beyond what the book says or learn about the book in a fun way, you can check that out, Octalysis Prime. That is so cool. All right. So final thought, what would you like to share? I love what you said about kind of taking some of the things and how you felt um, while playing the games and then how you your goal is really to improve people's lives outside of the gaming world. So what would you say to our listeners about like how they can go about doing that themselves? I think the number one thing to do is attitude. Having a game attitude really changed my life because some people define a game as voluntarily tackling unnecessary obstacles. So a game is that you don't need to do it, but there's a goal, there's obstacles, there's your resources, and you figure out how to use your resource to tackle it. And so in a game, when you see obstacles and challenges and setbacks, that's normal. 
that's that everything allows you to to overcome and and beat the game and level up whereas in life a lot of times like oh why is why is this happening why are there obstacles why why does this suck and we have this very complaining or or scared mentality and in a game if there's no challenges right then stupid is just like you're just going forward smoothly doing nothing yeah so so i think having a game like attitude means you're proactive with this what jay mcgonagall said calls urgent optimism you're optimistic you know that you can always reach the win state as long as you try but it's urgent you have to try now you have to take action immediately i think having that game had to really change my life and it's set me as an entrepreneur i think if there's one thing to learn from games really adopting the game attitude oh man i can't think of a better way to close out this episode i think that the game attitude is such a great point and i think that everybody can benefit from this whether they're a hardcore gamer or whether you just want to just level up outside of the digital space i think that that is so so absolutely yeah, so on another quick thing is the key thing is playing so a lot of people, very few people I've talked to have have uh, beaten the first Super Mario game on the NES, but every, pretty much everyone has a fond memory playing it. So the key thing is it's not that you don't beat it, you lose, you suck, right? By playing it, you're already a winner because it's enjoyable. You're making your life meaningful through the game you play. You know, this is not video games. Your life should be the game that's meaningful. The only way to lose is to not play, right? And so as long as you're playing the game of life, you're winning at the game of life. Man, so good. Well, this has been Yukai Chow all the way from Taiwan. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. If you want to check out Octalysis Prime and uh, and check out just how to learn about gamification, whether that's for gaming or just the world outside of gaming, um, you can check out his website and also check out his book. And uh, thank you so much, Yukai. This has been a lot of fun. And I really hope that we can get a chance to, at some point, I, I have made this offer available to all of our guests is that there's going to be uh, some free dance lessons in it for all the guests. So we may be able to gamify your dance skills uh, when you're back in the Bay Area. Maybe I think my wife will appreciate that. <laughs> so maybe this is the first time that you've ever looked at your career path or your creative pursuits or just the learning process through the filter of video games. When it comes to solving problems, really it's the tool that you need and that might not necessarily be the one that you were first looking for. And hopefully you found that tool today in this interview with Yukai. Overall, this entire interview really makes me understand so much more about what the whole purpose of this podcast is all about, to look at things from a different vantage point. Hopefully it does, truly, in the video game sense, level you up. My name is Chris Lynham. This has been Off the Floor, episode 13. I hope that you've been enjoying this. If you have, please hit the subscribe button on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and let me know what you think. 